Let us pray. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, it's still the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> That's what Andy Williams and Amy Grant have sang to me for a long time. <laughs> um, I think Andy and Amy were right. There are many holidays and special events throughout the year, but the beauty, innocence, and sweetness of Christmas is in a class all by itself, right? <laughs> Some of the things I enjoy most about Christmas are the anticipation of Christmas. Uh, Christmas Eve services with incense. Sorry, I love incense. Uh, Christmas carols. <laughs> exactly. Christmas carols, and I especially like uh, some of the lesser known Christmas carols, like Lo How a Rose Air Blooming or um, the whole Holly and the Ivy. Has anybody heard Jesus Christ the Apple Tree? Sweet and powerful hymn. <clears throat> but there are some other Christmas traditions that have become especially meaningful to me over the years. These are the readings, the devotions, uh, special commemorations that are traditionally observed during Christmas time, the 12 days. Uh, if you are not familiar with them, you may find some of them surprising, some of them even a little disturbing. December 26th is the Feast of St. Stephen the Martyr. One of the seven who were first ordained as deacons in Acts 6 and said to be the first martyr of the church. It's always struck me that the day after Christmas Day, we are asked to remember what is required of those who would dare to follow the Christ child. Then December 27th is the Feast of St. John, the apostle and evangelist, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who reclined close to Jesus at the Last Supper, whom Jesus commissioned to care for his mother, Mary, just before he died on the cross, who wrote five books of the New Testament. John is said to have lived to extreme old age and was the only apostle spared a martyr's death. So with John, I'm reminded of the blessings of those who love the most. And then December 28th, this one has always shaken me a little bit, the commemoration of the children murdered by Herod when he realized that he had been deceived by the wise men. You remember in Matthew 2, Remember, he, he slaughtered all male children two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding area in a desperate effort to kill Jesus. We do not know how many were murdered. St. Augustine said they were buds killed by the frost of persecution the moment they showed themselves. Many consider these children to be the true first martyrs of the church. I tend to think of them that way. They have also been called the Holy Innocents. And December 28th is the day we are called to remember them. Finally, I love the scriptures of Christmas. They're the familiar ones. Matthew 1 is the story where Joseph is betrothed to Mary. Mary is found with child. Joseph is visited in a dream by an angel and said, to take Mary as your wife. Uh, Jesus' birth, the star of Bethlehem, the wise men, <clears throat> the flight to Egypt. Herod kills the holy innocents. And Joseph, Mary, and Jesus finally return to Nazareth. And then in Luke 2 is Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem for the census. Jesus is born and wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The angels announce his birth to the shepherds who come to visit the new babe and praise God. We know those stories. But there are other passages 
in uh, the Bible that are traditionally read at Christmas. Uh, there are New Testament references to Jesus coming into the world uh, in the epistles. There are several of them. One of them is Galatians 4.4, Titus 3.4, 1 John 1. And there are Old Testament passages that prophetically point to Christ or easily have a latent or hidden or double meaning that alludes to the coming of the Messiah. And some of these readings were assigned for today, the first Sunday after Christmas. And I'm going to concentrate on our passage in Isaiah 61. So in Isaiah 61, which we read a portion of, Isaiah 61, 10 and following, Isaiah 61 is the same chapter that Jesus quotes at the beginning of his ministry when he reads the Bible in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. Remember, he took the scroll and he read. This is in Luke 4. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, the first two verses. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, etc. And then he said to the people, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. That was Isaiah 61 he quoted. And if you read a little further, it seems to be the same person talking in Isaiah 61. And what we read was, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The garments of salvation is what I've titled this, uh, this passage. When Jesus, was Jesus clothed with the garments of salvation? Um, in this passage and elsewhere, garments are frequently used as a metaphor for righteousness, putting on righteousness. And there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Job 29:14 says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness in Psalm 132. In Zechariah 3, an angel says to a priest, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And our passage today, Isaiah 61.10, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. But I suggest there's another sense, um, another meaning of the word garments. And when you read these readings and you think you're thinking of Christmas, you tend to realize this could have another meaning. Um, we have this meaning, I think, in John chapter 1, which Ethan just read to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In 1 John 1, the epistle of John, the apostle also says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And in our epistle reading in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Jesus did not need salvation, but for our sake and for our salvation, as we say every week, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus put on the garments of human flesh, and this was necessary for our salvation. Theologians call this the incarnation and we especially celebrate it at Christmas. In one of our favorite Christmas carols by Charles Wesley, we sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. You know the rest, right? Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So Jesus put on human flesh. He became one of us. Jesus clothed himself with our nature. Now we must clothe ourselves with his nature. We are called to become like him. He shared our human life. We are to share his divine life. That is our calling, our duty, 
our job, our vocation as Christians, to become more and more like Him. In the prayer I used at the beginning, um, Collect, this is actually the Collect for the second Sunday after Christmas, but it was so appropriate for today I wanted to use it. But in that prayer it says, Grant that we may share the divine life of Him who humbled Himself to share our humanity. He became like us. We are to become like Him. So how do we do this? How do we share Jesus' divine life? Jesus put on a human body. We are called to put on Jesus. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So how does this work? Well, I would suggest a couple ways. One, we put on Jesus in baptism. We just read, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27. In baptism, our sins are washed away. We are buried with Christ. We rise again from spiritual death. We are born again. And just as the early earth emerged out of the waters of chaos, God makes us a new creation. So the meaning of baptism is just loaded with meaning and depth. We also put on Jesus in the Lord's Supper. At the first Lord's Supper, Jesus commanded his disciples to take and eat. This is my body given for you. And with the cup, he said, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. God made us with a soul and a body. So our bodies must also participate in our spiritual life. We really can't separate them. We cannot be baptized without getting wet. And we cannot partake of the Lord without eating and drinking. The water of baptism and the bread and wine of communion are not magical things. They are spiritual transactions, which means they have a higher meaning than their mere material nature or action would suggest. At the Lord's Supper, in the prayer of consecration, uh, the priest prays over the bread and wine and asks the Lord to sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people, the body and blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And sanctify us also that we may worthily receive this holy sacrament and be made one body with him that he may dwell in us and we in him. In the post-communion Thanksgiving prayer, we say, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your son, Jesus, son, our savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of his body, of the body of your son. Ephesians 5.30 says, we are members of his body and flesh of his bones. We put on Jesus when we take communion. Just as we take the bread of heaven into our body, so we are his body. We are the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ on this earth right now. The Old Testament tells us that life was in the blood in the old sacrifices. We take the blood of the new covenant in the form of sweet wine, and his life is in us, and our life is in him. It's a wonderful, mysterious sacrament. Another thing, um, this image of putting on garments, the garments of salvation, the garments of righteousness, is a very persistent one in Scripture. And it is especially associated with the wearing of festive garments at a great marriage feast of a king. Orthodox priest Patrick Henry Reardon, in his book Christ in the Psalms, says this, the, the, this interpretation of history as the preparation of a royal wedding ceremony is so pervasive and obvious in Holy Scripture that we Christians, taking it so much for granted, may actually overlook it or give it little thought. In our Isaiah passage today, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And the imagery continues in Isaiah 62. 
You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall not be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, or the wonderful world, Beulah, in the New King James Version, Beulah land. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's the marriage of the king and his bride. Psalm 45 is another royal wedding psalm, and Messianic is quoted in Hebrews 1. The psalm praises the king, uh, the glory of the king, including his royal robes, all fragrant with myrrh, aloes, and cassia. Then it praises the bride and her beauty, including her many-colored robes interwoven with gold. So this garments, beautiful garments at the feast. Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom, a parable of the Lord's return. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. John the Baptist right away refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, I have betrothed you to one husband that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11. And in Ephesians 5, we have the passage of Paul to uh, husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, etc. Long passage. Then it says, this mystery is, a prof is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. And then we have this passage at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 19, 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, on the first Christmas, Jesus clothed himself, clothed himself with the garments of salvation, our salvation. He put on human flesh. We are called to adorn ourselves with the garments of salvation, which is Jesus himself and his righteousness. This putting on of garments is likened in Scripture to the preparation of a great wedding, the wedding of a king and his bride. <clears throat> Many years ago, I attended a conference. I'm a geologist. It was a geological conference in Jamaica, the island of Jamaica. So we had this big trip and field trip and the meeting. And uh, everyone at the end, everyone quickly left for the airport. And for some reason, I didn't get the memo or something. I thought we had to stay another day. And I was kind of stuck there for another day. Everybody left, and uh, I was kind of by myself. And um, uh, they managed to find me a dorm room at the University of the West Indies in Kingston, which is a very interesting place. Uh, I had no TV, no radio, no access to any place in the city. I didn't know my way around, I, so I just kind of stayed there. Didn't even have much anything to read. I was alone in the room with a twin bed and a chair. I did manage to walk around the campus before it got dark and look around. Then I hunkered down for the evening. Uh, I barely managed to get a pizza delivered. <laughs> that was the high point. So I'm sitting there, not much to do, just waiting to go to bed and uh, get up the next morning. But after a while, I heard a commotion down in the commons area uh, where I was. It was like on the campus. And uh, I kind of snuck down there. It was night. Nobody saw me. I wanted to see what was going on. I got a peek. And it was clearly a wedding party or a reception. A large room filled with people, and they were all dressed in white. Dresses, tuxedos, just pure white. I mean, it was amazing. And I thought, well, I would love to just go in and just sit in the corner and watch the party. But I didn't dare, uh, of course. For one thing, I wasn't invited. Uh, number two, um, uh, I was kind of short on clean clothes, so I was looking pretty shabby <laughs> at that point. 
Um, and I thought, if I crashed this party, they would call the police on me and drag me out. And rightly they should, um, because I wasn't invited and mostly because I did not have a wedding garment. I did not have the appropriate clothes at all. And it just sort of struck me, this parable in Matthew 22, where you have that image of the guest being thrown out of the wedding party. I got it. I get it. I, I should have been thrown out when I saw that. I knew what that meant. <clears throat> in a few moments, we will participate um, in the marriage supper of the Lamb as we do here and now. Um, you will need to be prepared. You need to be properly dressed. You're going to need the robe of righteousness. Do not neglect to put it on. Fortunately, the master of the feast has provided these robes for us, and they are received strictly by faith. In Titus 3, 4 and 5, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3, 9 says, Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And in Romans 4.3, we're reminded that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. One final thing. When you come to the feast, you really should bring a gift. You know, at Christmas time, we're always concerned, do we get every, something for everybody on our list? We're running around trying to make sure we got all our gifts. But have you ever thought about giving Jesus a gift at Christmas? I admit I have not thought much about that. Um, maybe we should. The wise men brought precious and expensive gifts to the Christ child, and I think Jesus' family needed them, and I think Joseph probably put them to good use. We do come to the Lord's Supper to receive, but we should never really come up here empty-handed. What gifts should we bring? Talk about trying to buy for someone who has everything. <laughs> but I've got an idea. It's not too late, shoppers. And it might be something he does not have. I mentioned Christmas songs that were not widely, uh, frequently sung at Christmas time. One of them is called In the Bleak Midwinter. Heard that one? And uh, it says, what, and the last verse says, What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. So how does this work? What does it look like to give Jesus your heart? I suppose we could talk a lot about that, but I thought, well, I know what it looks like for me and what it means for me to give my heart to the Lord. So I just suspect that you know what it means for you and what it looks like for you to give your heart to the Lord. Have you already given your heart to Jesus? Yes, I have too, a long time ago. Perhaps we should consider giving him the rest of our heart, all of our heart. This is something I think we have to continually work on. We are still clothed in these, in these sinful bodies. The Bible speaks, you know, of our gifts to the Lord as being something like a sacrifice, sacrificial gifts. I've always thought this was interesting. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit, and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Psalm 50, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13. And Romans 12, 1 says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Our heart, our thanksgiving, our praise, our bodies, ourselves, these are the gifts we bring to the newborn king. So this morning, come receive your Christmas gift. 
put on Jesus our righteousness, our garment of salvation, and be sure to leave your gifts at the altar. Merry Christmas. Let's stand together and offer our worship to the Lord. 